Hi, Lauren. Uh, we are very excited to have have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Abu. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Uh, so we have Lauren with us today uh, to participate in our podcast uh, with Net Solutions. Uh, we'll try to keep this conversation around 30 to 40 minutes, during which we'll cover Lauren's journey as a product owner and a manager, and he'll walk us through his journey specifically as it pertains to FAVE, where he currently works, and we'll ask Lauren some of his day-to-day -day responsibilities, some probing questions around product development and how to build products that scale. My name is Abby Garg, and I lead the sales and marketing initiatives at Net Solutions. Uh, we are a global software consulting group with offices in India and other parts of the world. All right, so let's get the show on the road. Uh, Lauren, I will try to keep this very conversational, Q&A oriented, and you please feel free to you know add more depth or dimension to the to the conversation as you see fit. You don't necessarily have to contain yourself uh, on the question that is or on the conversation topic that we're covering. So feel free to take it in any direction. It's open for us. Uh, so get yeah to get things started, uh, Lauren. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, as you see fit. You know, we don't have to walk through your LinkedIn profile, but <laughs> just tell us just tell us how how you see your journey as it has progressed for your career, personally or professionally, so far. Awesome. Yeah, of course, happy to do so. So my name is Lauren Stahl, or in English, uh, people call me Lauren. Uh, I'm originally from Germany, but currently I live and work in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia at a company called Faith. Uh, so just a little bit about Faith. It's, um, it's a, uh, basically often, uh, often people would call it a digital wallet, but we actually see ourselves as a payments aggregator. So we try to combine all the wallets that are available in the Southeast Asian space and give consumers uh, an easy and straightforward way to pay uh, through any means that they want. And at the same time, we push loyalty products that basically uh, lead to the customer uh, doing repeat purchases at our merchants that we acquire also on our merchant platform. And we give them the possibility of uh, putting deals on our platform, accepting payments, through our platform and uh, other loyalty solutions. Uh, however, I haven't been a product manager all my life. Uh, actually, I studied to be a scientist in school and in university. My major was always around biology and chemistry, and I was uh, training, training to do that and to do that for the rest of my life. But uh, luckily, there was, a, there was a break that I took during my major, where I was studying to become a master's, that I had the opportunity to work for one year in an organization called ISEC, which is a, a nonprofit, global nonprofit run mostly by young people and students. And I had a one-year placement as a project manager that happened to be working on IT projects, which was the first time that I actually held any sort of full-time position working with IT. For that, I had only dabbled uh, with it in my free time uh, as a hobby. And I realized that uh, actually I, like, I liked it a lot. And that was the first time I felt that, hey, work is not something that you do to pay the bills. Work is actually something that you can enjoy and you can look forward to. Um, and the interesting thing about that one year placement was that the engineers that, are working, that I was working with, with developing the products, they were actually volunteers uh, as a student-run organization, obviously. So I was immediately thrown into a challenge as a product manager of how do I actually get people to do something uh, without authority? How do I lead them and how do I inspire them to build the products that they believe in? Uh, because if they're, if they're volunteers, if they're not paid, 
uh, it's very easy for them to just not put in the hours, right? So that was, that was a very, very eye-opening experience and led me to actually decide to break off my major. Uh, I never graduated and stay, stay in that kind of role. So my second and third year uh, working as product managers were, I would say, a little bit more classical, working as a product manager, uh, still with the same organization, but uh, working on an open multi-sided marketplace, which matches uh, young people and students with internship opportunities all over the world. And I was working with an external company, uh, kind of building that platform. I uh, was thrown pretty, pretty quickly into a leadership role where, if I'm being honest, I had no idea what I was doing, leading a team <laughs> of uh, product marketers and product managers, and somehow just trying to, to figure this out. How do you build an open multi-sided platform? How do you integrate um, a consumer-facing uh, platform with a business-facing platform and kind of build up those network effects that help you grow the marketplace? Uh, was very interesting, but uh, as this was a NGO with one-year placements, my future was limited. So after three years, uh, I basically moved aside and uh, left the space for for my successor. And I was looking for uh, my next next job in product management. And that's where I found Faith, which really uh, I found really interesting because always I had wanted to work on a product that I could see myself working on in a daily basis. My biggest dream would be to work for Google Maps, which is like my favorite product. But uh, Faith is, uh, is similar, similar good uh, as, a, as a consumer facing product. Uh, I do daily basis and it's quite interesting to see how you think differently about the product when you actually use it. Um, so I've been here uh, for a little bit over a year now. I started in the consumer facing products but then quickly expanded my role also to take on the merchant platform as well. Uh, and right now I'm overseeing what we call the platform products team, where uh, my responsibility is, um, again, to, to grow our multi-sided platform, grow the ecosystem and figure out how, um, yeah, how, how we can grow this, this platform, how we can grow both sides of the marketplace and put network effects. Wow. Fantastic. That that sounds very exciting. I do have one comment though. When you said uh, you got a lucky break when you took some time off and you were introduced to Isaac, but but if you had if you had stuck around with biology and chemistry, you might have had an opportunity to contribute to the drug discovery that's currently going on with COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even, yeah. you know, don't demystify this virus a little further. I, I mean, we can choose to laugh about this, but yeah, globally, a lot of people have lost their lives and a lot of people are suffering or lost jobs because of this, but you know, it looks like chemistry and biology are the, are the best places or the best streams to be associated with at the moment, especially with, with what's happening around the world. But circling back to what you said about, uh, you know, the Isaac presenting that opportunity for you to discover your way to product management. If, if I heard that right, mm -hmm. which, you know, which facets of of people management would you say are important to product management because both the way i see them are different areas yeah. of specialty right yeah definitely uh, i think it really depends on what kind of role you're in let's let's take the classical product manager role where you're most likely an individual contributor you're working maybe with your design team data science team but mainly with your engineers and you might have product managers that work uh on the same platform uh, that you need to interact with and kind of um, yeah, collaborate with. But you're, you're mainly an individual 
contributor, right? However, it does not mean that uh, you wouldn't need to have any kind of people skills or leadership skills. Those products, they don't necessarily exist in vacuums. But it's very easy for us to kind of yeah, run our discovery process, build our roadmap, and then just just plow through, build on it without without speaking to anyone. But that those products probably are not successful. They they will exist. Uh, they they are built only by the ideas that you come up with that you have in your head. But a lot of times, successful products they require uh, collaboration with different stakeholders in your company. So, for example, in my case at Faith. Uh, Every improvement that we're doing, or every new product that we're introducing on the consumer platform, that has a, it will have an base. So someone will need to go out and tell our merchants, "Hey, we have this new product. What do you think about it? Do you want to sign it, sign on on it?" And if I don't consider those stakeholders, I don't uh, involve their feedback, uh, consider their hopes and fears, then uh, yeah, my product will not be successful. I think a very interesting uh, example for that would be. Uh, what we what we did with our merchant platform, because when we were uh, building it up, uh, we had this kind of ambition that we wanted to have merchants be able to sign up within minutes and accept payments. So we, because until now, Faith is very much business driven, so sales driven, we need to go out, speak to merchants to get them on. But with a new, new digital economy, we wanted to have a place where merchants could discover us on their own and sign up and immediately accept payments. But that product was not necessarily as successful as it could be because it didn't have a, the backing or the support from from everyone in the company. Business teams they were they were afraid that basically their merchant base would be taken away from them, that they could lose uh, commissions by merchants signing up through our self onboarding process instead of being onboarded by them. So these are considerations that uh, if you don't if you don't think about these things, if you don't involve everyone in the company, um, and yeah, uh, practice stakeholder management, then your product might end up failing and not be successful, even though it's a very sound product in theory. Interesting. There's a couple of things you said uh, that, you know, uh, piqued my interest, especially the thing you said about discovery. So just walk, please walk us through uh, what a typical discovery exercise looks like for you, whether it's in the context of what should be developed as uh, or what should be added to the roadmap uh, for the uh, at in some time horizon, and I'll circle back to this. But and the other facet could be discovering the challenges that your audience or the stakeholders or the different persona types that you've already mapped for your audiences uh, they're experiencing. So in one in what context do you typically use discovery as a tool, and what does that discovery look like for you and your team? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the discovery uh, is. A little bit different depending on whether we are trying to launch a new product or whether we are trying to iterate on a product. So maybe I can go with the first one first because uh, I I think uh, Faith was in the same situation as a lot of businesses uh, around March when basically our yeah when the first lockdown came also in Malaysia Singapore and where we are operating basically our business was going down flatlining and we wanted to find ways to at least temporarily revive the business and give our merchants faith is there for them and helping them at least turn a little bit of revenue so they don't basically die and disappear. And that was definitely going into new markets and doing new things that we were not doing before. I think the, the first thing we were doing obviously is look at what are our competitors doing? 
what are business opportunities that our direct competitors or indirect competitors are doing that could be relevant for us that we could that we could copy and we could get some market share of that and then uh, that allows you to quite easily figure out um, how products are structured what's the pricing element um, like one example is we looked at delivery should faith be doing food delivery which are which one of our competitors grab is doing as a major business line um, commercials are quite clear a lot of competitors are doing it you can look at it um, and then you just need to figure out what our merchants wanted and then the main tool for that is interviewing we were interviewing merchants we were proposing we we're pitching them this is how we would want to price it this is how it would work what do you think about it um, then we would also align with our internal teams uh, is this something that scales can we actually onboard plenty of merchants fit their food items on our app and then we were, of course, also considering the technical aspect. How fast can we build this? This is something that we have the right tech stack for. And then you kind of evaluate all of those things um, and figure out, is this an opportunity that is worth it? You weigh the risk against the opportunity cost, and then you make a decision. Um, that's like the initial discovery. And that's where like the business viability test is being done. Once you've, once you've cleared that, and you have basically the go-ahead from all stakeholders, that this is something you want to do. Then, the, then it goes more into the classical discovery methods that probably you would also do iterating a product, like figuring out what is the best user journey. Uh, so you, you, you collaborate with your product design team, you make some assumptions, uh, you could run a design sprint uh, to bring different stakeholders from your company or even customers in the same room and brainstorm basically. It's like a facilitated brainstorm. And out of that, you get some initial wireframes, you can build some designs and validate those both with customers and merchants. And I think at that point, um, we're already almost good to go to hand it over to engineers and start developing. And when it comes to iterating products that are there already, I think a much bigger focus is on the data that you're currently collecting. Because you will have transaction data, you will have uh, user behavior data that you can look at and understand. Just map the funnel. Like this is how many people see the feature, how many people click into it, and this is how many people who successfully complete the goal of the feature. And then you can easily see where's the bottleneck, what can I do to improve it? And then you could use the same methodologies like customer interviews, brainstorming sessions, design sprints, etc. Understood. Thank you for that. So so it looks like there are two different types of discoveries then, right? The first one is figuring out if you want to build an MVP for something. And the second one would be once that MVP has been greenlighted, how do you go about discovering the landscape of how the teams with, would organize themselves to get it done? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Understood. And uh, at what point... And you know, you mentioned that in the first type of discovery that you're speaking with different stakeholders, you're looking at the opportunity cost, you're looking at all the other different parameters that would comprise uh, or go into the framework that would give you a yay or nay answer. At what point or who decides, or is it a team decision that this MVP is a go, or is it purely financial decision that is there an opportunity cost or a loss to be had if, if we don't go through with this or if we do go with if we uh, through with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe this um, depends probably on the size of the of the initiative and the size of the project or product. Uh, it could be we could be talking about a major, major new product, as I was mentioning, should we do food delivery, right? Uh, it could also be a minor improvement uh, inside the app. And then I think uh, 
that that scope uh, would probably dictate whom to be involved. But in the end, it it will end up being a team decision. So team meaning uh, could be the engineer saying uh, we cannot build this. This will be a factor in the in the final decision. Could be gut feeling. It could be commercials. But in the end, at least when I look back at those decisions that we made, really we were all in a room. We were looking at it uh, like a virtual room. We were looking at it, and people usually the feeling would be the same. Like people either say this sounds good or this doesn't sound good. So basically, the process to get there is to gather all the information and then yeah decide to do it or not. It's very interesting because um, uh, the gut feeling that you can have is very different from, let's say, someone pitches it initially. It's like, hey, we should do food delivery versus when you collect all the information. When I look at uh, a lot of stakeholders for uh, business, uh, also product, and as well as engineers, we're super excited to do, to do food delivery. Like we were all on it to, to run the discovery. But then when we did get out all the data, everyone was like, no, let's not do it. So I think, um, yeah, group decision. And if all the information is there, I mean, we're all reasonable people, right? We're, we're, we all like to be, to think of ourselves as smart people. And if all the information is there, the decision should be obvious. Okay, understood. And in speaking specifically at Fave, uh, tell us a little bit more about the financial components, the transactions and other parts that comprise of the merchant platform or the wallets or the other payment mechanisms that you have? Just give us a bird's eye view of how that is structured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have uh, two, two main products that basically drive revenue and profit for Faith uh, as well as for our merchants. One is our payments product and how that traditionally works is um, how everyone has been doing it. Uh, credit card companies, e-wallets, everyone is what we call the MDR, which is the merchant discount rate, which is a percentage that gets uh, charged on top of every transaction. Here for Faith, as a payment aggregator, uh, but probably different wallets also have the same problem, is that uh, we have to pay an MDR to who is facilitating pay the payments processing for us. So for example, when a customer uses a Visa, Visa card, Faith needs to pay a fee to Visa. And then the merchant will pay a fee to us that um, basically tries to offset the, the cost for us. And then there, uh, and there, there are different elements to that, right? If we charge it higher than a credit card, then the company would be saying, uh, why should I use you when I can get it cheaper from the credit card company? Uh, the other hand is if we price it cheaper, uh, every transaction is a loss for us. And then uh, that depends on how much, how much cash you basically have to burn. I think large companies like uh, Grab or uh, yeah, other big players, they probably have a lot of investment, a lot of cash to burn. Whereas faith at a smaller scale, uh, what we like to do is find a way that every transaction that is profitable for us. It does not mean that we do crazy profit, but there's no loss. And then the economics of scale will kick in that small profit. In the end, with a large amount of transactions, it will lead to a big profit. And there's uh, different strategies that we can do to make sure that every transaction in the end is net positive. I think one, uh, one key component of that is our loyalty feature. When you transact with Faith at one of our merchants, you're getting cash back. So that cash back is uh, basically, let's say I buy a coffee at Starbucks, I get 10% cash back that I can use for my next transaction. Most of our competitors, they fund this cash back. And it basically is just a way for them to acquire more customers or make sure customers stay loyal. In our case, for Faith, this cash back is merchant funded. 
So the merchant pays for it, um, and they see it as a, yeah, as a basically marketing spend. Uh, most companies they're they're fine with paying ten percent uh, to get customers to return. Uh, the interesting element is that this cashback has an expiry date. So if I purchase at, uh, at Starbucks and I don't use my cashback in three months, the cashback expires. And this breakage uh, of cashback also goes back to faith. So with that in mind, uh, in the end, we managed to find a model of what kind of extension period do we have, uh, what kind of MDR do we charge, and what kind of cashback do we give, uh, that in the end, our faith pay transactions are actually profitable. So that means we can do, we can comfortably scale up our transaction. We don't need to fear uh, of running out of, uh, of money, which makes us probably more uh, stable or, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's less risky for us than for our competitors. But of course, customers, they might see us uh, not being as, as a good uh, viable option as, let's say, Grab, for example. Grab gives you a lot of points that you can use uh, at any merchant. So there's not this locking in and having to use your cash back at one specific uh, merchant. Merchant, and, okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. do you see all these incentives and rewards could be a 10% cash back or a free cup of coffee or these points that we speak of? Do, internally, when you're you know running the numbers, do you see do you offset these costs against customer acquisition? So count them as CAC or do you count these offset these against LTV or do you just have a separate tranche park or how do product companies typically audit these these spends or you know uh, bucket these spends? I think that's a better word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we we report it actually as a cost of transaction. Um, so we we record um, like first one obviously how many transactions do we do? What is the gross merchandise value that we receive uh, for all of these transactions? And then what is the total uh, profit that we receive for the transaction? And this breakdown we we look at it overall uh, monthly basis, yearly basis, but we can also look at it for each and every transaction. So then we have some transactions that. Uh, that have a negative transaction value and for us uh, in terms of profit. And we have some transactions that have a positive transaction value depending on which mechanics were used, was a promo code used in a transaction. And then in the end, um, uh, it, uh, we, we just sum it up and in the end we see, we see our, our profit and our revenue out of this. So how we, how we track it is usually um, cost per transaction for, or like, if it's negative, it's cost. If it's <laughs> if it's positive, it's profit. Uh, but yeah, we usually just look at it profit per transaction. Okay. And, All right. Yeah, we, we try to possible like through negotiating with our payment partners or increasing our MDR rate, etc. Okay. Let's let's switch gears for a second and let's talk about products and platforms at a holistic level. Um, and uh, this question gets asked a lot. What, what is the difference, if any, between a product and a platform? And can a product become a platform or vice versa? How does that mm -hmm. work? Yeah, I think that I, I, I can understand why people probably uh, are either confuse it or debate about it or probably have different opinions about it, right? So what I would share is probably my my opinion and how how I've seen it being used at my current job at Faith, but also previous job at, uh, at Isaac. So um, in my opinion, a product can be a platform, but it uh, doesn't have to. So for me, a platform is usually 
like a vessel that that gives the space that facilitates um, facilitates the existence of products. So how how we use it at Faith, for example, what we call our product is our payments product, for example, Faith Pay, or our deals product, which is Faith Deals. And those products they don't exist in one in one platform only. A platform is basically uh, a space that facilitates interactions, transfer of some sort of value, either between one party or multiple parties. So when you look at uh, Faith as an open multi-sided marketplace, we do have merchants and we have consumers. That's a two-sided marketplace. Uh, platforms like, let's say, LinkedIn, for example, where you have uh, professional workers talking and exchanging information with professionals. That's then uh, that part of it is a one-sided marketplace. But then LinkedIn also has elements that make it again a two-sided marketplace when you when you think about advertisement and companies uh, posting jobs. So um, I think what I'm trying to say is that platform can be, uh, depending on the context that you're speaking of, you can increase what the scope of your platform is and you can decrease it. We generally like to, at Faith, we like to think of our ecosystem consisting of two platforms. One platform being our consumer platform and one platform being our merchant platform and our products, they exist within both platforms. Does that make sense? I think it does, yes. So those are textbook definition then, right? It, <laughs> it, is, it is very contextual and depends on the use case and how product has been structured. Do you have API access that you have enabled for third parties to hook into your product? Mm -hmm. Is that is is that the point when it becomes a platform because now you have information exchange happening outside of your core product, or does it not matter at all? Uh, I think for me, um, what makes a platform a platform is when you think about who provides the ex, uh, who the information or the value is exchanged with. So when I let's say I open uh, an online shop and I start selling I don't know shoes online, that's not a platform because the the value is exchanged between me. And my customer. However, if I were to pivot that platform and I allow, allow other customers to post their own products, their own shoes to sell, then suddenly it becomes a platform because then I become a facilitator of those transactions between third parties and, and I'm just a provider of the platform. Ah, interesting. Interesting take on this. So a marketplace is by definition then a platform. Yeah. I mean, then there, there's, of course, also, uh, also always different ways that platform providers try to to improve how their platform works and improve the um, supply and demand side, right? So I think early early stage uh, platforms and uh, start out as being um, actually just a, like an, an online shop that that can look like a platform. Let's say I want to I want to launch a platform, but I didn't acquire any merchants yet, and I could start selling my own stuff. Um, and use it as a growth driver then to, <clears throat> to get consumers on the platform, makes it more attractive to then acquire merchants on the platform. Um, and even today, Faith also lists some deals where, where Faith is actually the, the seller, just that we do through negotiations with partners, we bundle deals, uh, we bundle multiple offerings that are sold under the name of Faith, for example. So even though we are mainly a facilitator of those transactions, some of those transactions we are also the participant. Understood. I think that's how Amazon.com also started by exactly. selling book, yeah, by selling books that they wanted to sell, and then eventually morphed into this giant marketplace and a platform. And they continue to be the seller as well, a seller as well, 
but bulk of it is driven by third parties, as you said, who then post their products and push their sales through the channel. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And what are some of the best ways to manage these products and platforms? You know, what, what would you call a good tool set or what does your tool set look like at Fave to manage your product or the, or the family of products? How do you get a, how do you get a feel of the audience? How are they feeling? Do you use any sentiment analysis? How do you market your wares and products, affiliate marketing, any of that stuff? And then mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of other questions as well, but let's just start with this first. Let's start with the tool set of choice for you to manage your yeah. product. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me has always been figuring out who is actually the, the responsible um, for a platform or a product. And I think uh, also other people will have the same challenge. Will I manage my, will I manage per pro product or will I manage per platform? Uh, and I think as product manager or as someone leading product managers or being responsible for the platform sets so the first step to figure out before I think about how do I, uh, what are the tools that I can use? And I think two considerations uh, that are there that we usually take is uh, if I were to manage by product, let's say uh, the payments product, uh, then my product manager needs to understand both the consumer side and the merchant side. And the engineers need to be comfortable working both in the consumer platform and in the merchant platform. So that increases the complexity, but it gives you much more leverage because ideally uh, products should not, uh, should not be, don't grow, shouldn't be driven one-sided. I won't make a successful product only by improving the customer experience on the consumer side without considering how do I also improve the, the product on the merchant side. Uh, at Faith, however, we don't do it like that. We don't manage by products. We actually manage by platforms. So we have one, product manager for the consumer platform, we have one product manager for the uh, merchant platform. And um, the challenge here is basically how do you make sure these people collaborate so that uh, what I was just explaining, that uh, products don't live uh, in an, only one platform, uh, how do they collaborate? So here the tools that we, that we like to use is actually general collaboration tools. So, we try to make sure that our roadmap is uh, in one place. So uh, we use Notion for that, make sure we have a good collaborative uh, mindset, good collaborative structure through having frequent update meetings, uh, but also collaborative meetings. And then I think once you got that sorted out, it's not necessarily that different from managing any product. Um, you, uh, you take the biggest bottleneck that you have and try solving that. So I think what changes is the kind of metrics that you might be looking at, because um, uh, you when you um, when you when you think of a traditional product, you usually have a customer journey that just goes from uh, understand finding out about a product to purchasing the product, and that's it. Whereas on a platform, um, and you you get successful if you drive repeat purchases. So instead of figuring out how do I get my customer to come use the platform once, purchase, and then leave. Uh, it comes a lot about how do I build an ecosystem or how do I build an onboarding experience for a customer that uh, makes sure they, they understand what are the, all the products are there. How do I understand which customer segment does this customer fall into? Because in Faith, we have two distinct use cases. One is uh, I learn about Faith at the shop and I just want to use it to pay. So I download the app and my goal is to pay as fast as possible. But that's not necessarily what I would want as a product manager, because then the guy comes and leaves again. 
I want them to, I don't know, I want to want them to go through an onboarding experience. I want them to show me their interests so I can suggest relevant offerings to them, but that would slow down the payment. So I think for us, the, the kind of tools that we're using are um, not necessarily post personas, more like jobs to be done. So we, we distinct what are the different jobs that our customers try to get done on our platform. And then we iterate around that, like how, how well are our customers currently able to do that, that specific job. And then we build the experiences around them while still trying to manage it all in one coherent, uh, yeah, in one coherent platform that one journey does not kill the other journey. Is that kind of what we're looking for? Yes, yes, absolutely. Makes sense. And I've heard that you've used the term product owner and product manager at different points in the conversation so far. How do you differentiate between the two roles, so to speak, at Fave? Yeah, at Fave, we actually don't have a product owner necessarily. Uh, so there are, there's also um, a textbook definition, right? Uh, at least from my context of being in Germany, uh, what a product owner was is usually uh, very much centered around the delivery of the product and managing the uh, process with the engineers doing the requirements gathering, and then they are paired with a business owner uh, or a stakeholder that would actually do all the, that would give the re requirements and would uh, be the bridge to the customer. At Faith, uh, we call all our product managers, product managers. There's no product owner, and we, we like to take ownership of the whole end-to-end -end process. So. Um, in the end, everything comes together in one brain, basically. So one person is responsible for managing uh, the process with the engineers, but is also responsible for uh, gathering the requirements with the with the customers or with the yeah with the customers, but also understanding what are the needs of our business teams. So yeah, uh, I think managing the whole end-to-end lifecycle of the product—that's what our product managers do. Okay. And in, when you're building a roadmap for any feature, whether that's through discovery or just an organic pivot to do something new or just enhancing a feature, is that roadmap constructed in isolation or in totality of the product? And is that roadmap short-term, long-term, mid-term? How do you typically do that at Faith? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it also changes probably every year we realize, oh, this was not working so well, so let's let's change it up. Um, and also every year, the, the length of our roadmap uh, kind of increases. And I think that's because basically our our company becomes more mature. I think with Faith just has a couple of years under its belt, four, four to five years, so still very young. And I think this is, uh, we, we just finished our roadmap process, and I think this is the first time we had, a, <clears throat> we had a roadmap that spans six months. So that's considered long for us. But I also do understand that for more established companies with much more complexity, uh, roadmaps can be longer, uh, up to up to 12 months or, yeah, I would say one year roadmap is, is probably quite common. But what we find at Faith still being quite young, there, there are still factors that, that can easily disrupt our roadmap. So if we, if we were to have a one year roadmap or even when you have a six months roadmap, it is quite possible that uh, something will come up after one month or two months, three months, which will have us to completely relook uh, our roadmap and change, uh, yeah, change what we had planned. I mean, just at the beginning of this year, we had a plan for three months, 
Um, and that completely got disrupted when, uh, when the lockdown came and we needed to change everything. So there's a lot of waste that goes into it if you plan your roadmap too long term and you're not confident that you will be able to stick to that roadmap. I think these are the considerations to, to keep in mind. So what we like to do is uh, we use a concept called the rolling roadmap that basically tells you you need to be absolutely sure what you're going to be doing in the next two weeks. There can be no question asked. For the next month, you should know and you, you should have already explained it to your engineers what it is. When you look at two months, you should have the higher priorities sorted and anything beyond three months is just uh, topics, themes that you're currently investigating. So um, for us, uh, that's how we, how we ran it before. As I was saying, I think this year is the first time that we have a roadmap that actually is quite concrete, spanning up to six months. Wow. Okay. One would one would imagine that it it would have led you in the opposite direction to make them even shorter because of the uncertainties that are happening <laughs> in the world, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think um, I think a reason for that is also because we were asking, do those roadmaps get created in isolation, right? Uh, right. We also, we also did a quite extensive process where we brought everyone together from business, uh, our payments product managers, and our platform product managers. And especially with payments, um, like I was, I was explaining before, what, uh, what are, one of the key things that we're trying to do is uh, increase the profit per transaction. One way to do that is to integrate payment providers directly, like e-wallets that generally charge a lower rate. But these projects, they take a lot of time, especially through negotiation, but also complexity of implementation. But then you also need to match whatever is happening on the payments roadmap, also with the consumer or the merchant roadmap. Um, so since we are working much better now on this integration and building a roadmap that that uh, yeah focuses on on end-to-end -end, uh, products that are reflected in all our platforms, so they can they can grow from all sides. Uh, that's that's what made us build a longer roadmap this time. Okay, and talking, speaking within the context of products and platforms, you know, we have different terms that measure the success or the collaborative nature of these products and platforms. We use terms such as network effects, the transactions, you refer to that as, you know, the cost per transaction. Then we also spoke a little bit about producers and consumers. And well, we spoke of consumers, we haven't spoken of producers because those producers are the merchants in this case, or the the product inventory owners so to speak and the bunch of other things that could go into what would constitute the success of a platform so i'll give you an example so the way i see this in my head is if you speak of uh, a taxi aggregator and if they have too many riders but not sufficient drivers then there's a mismatch and the riders will have to wait indefinitely to to find a taxi and on the other hand, if you have too many taxis or cabs, but not too many riders, then the the rider then the drivers would idle out, waiting for a for a match, right? And I think yeah. you provided that example that initially, maybe the aggregator has to take on the owners of a producer, to get that that base of consumers into the system, and then go out and look for you know those other producers who could offset the job of the aggregator, but. Yeah. In your world, either at FAVE or before then, or how you see this pan out for you, what are some of the success criteria that could be used to ascertain the success of a product or a platform? Yeah, I think uh, especially as platforms grow 
there is a there's a key challenge. Uh, maybe not necessarily for taxi aggregate aggregator, but for for marketplaces, it's it's quite easy for the product offering quality to drop. So once you once you open up the floodgates, right, and anyone can can add products, it's quite uh, it's quite easy that um, yeah, low low quality products uh, will come to your marketplace. Just think of uh, Amazon probably has a lot of problems with knockoff uh, uh, yeah knockoff knockoff products being sold uh, real deal, etc. So the role of the of the platform provider changes much more from from a, pro, from a provider and someone that grows the marketplace to someone that has to regulate the marketplace. So we at Faith, we actually do standardize our products and uh, we, we don't have a fully self-serve system. So you cannot sign up and create a product offering and immediately you're on the platform for everyone to discover. We still have a, a compliance check and a quality check and making sure that it fits our how, how we would like our products to be offered. So when there's a deal or a merchant, we make sure that we have pictures of the storefront, we have pictures of the offering. Because uh, yeah, if a merchant would sign up and they don't have pictures, but they have low quality pictures, then we'll just have a flooded marketplace with plenty of offerings that nobody's going to buy. And the more offerings you have, the harder it is for your customers to find them. Um, so like if I have, let's say I would have every store in Kuala Lumpur on the app, every merchant, and then a customer wants to find a cafe and they go, oh, well, there are my places nearby and there's so much irrelevant stuff, then they're also going to drop off. So sometimes, uh, or at this point, the role or the success metric will not, not be the amount of, uh, amount of product offerings anymore or the amount of customers necessarily. What you will start measuring is uh, how easy you can match your customers with product offerings. Then there are certain tools that you can use to improve it. Um, one is you can improve your search and filtering uh, experience and then measure, measure things like how fast to find the product or how good is the conversion rate and how often do they become repeat purchases. You can also um, start looking at supply and demand metrics, like what, what are your customers likely to buy and how, how much do you have of those things on the platform. Um, yeah, and I think the... Sorry, did I miss anything from your question? No, I think you know, you you've uh, answered all facets of it. But uh, there's one tangent I want to pick on based on what you said about matching customers with food offerings or other product offerings. Is do you have any personalization that you currently use through machine learning or otherwise in your product offering that enables or automates any of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is. Uh, I really like that you picked the, that up. Uh, I think I was I also wanted to get there because yeah, one way to make sure merchant, uh, customers find what they want is filtering uh, and searching. But probably the behavior of customers is changing when you have platforms like Netflix or Amazon being able to recommend exactly what customers want. The new customer behavior that we see in our platform is they want to open the app, see exactly what they want, and then close it again. And yeah, provide that is for recommendations and machine learning. So we do have a data team who is solely responsible for powering these kind of things. And they basically provide uh, our core engineering team with sort of APIs or other integrations that then allow us to basically affect the sorting, affect what is being displayed by the search, affect what is being sent around in our daily emails with product offerings. 
that they are customized based on the customer's previous purchasing behavior, or in the case of a new user, uh, we match them. We, we try to figure out okay, this customer has these kind of criteria. How do they? Who? What are similar customers like age, gender, uh, city, and then uh, basically suggest them the same things that we would suggest to those people that we already know what they like. Perfect. All right. So let's talk about. Uh, some of the compliances that you may have to deal with, given that you're working in the, you know, the money space, finance space, wallet space, right? And any financial product, whether it's a soft product or a hard product like a like a bank account, you need to comply with certain policies, uh, which are sometimes local, sometimes global. So, a, uh, do you have to comply with any such thing? And then, b, how do you measure that compliance? And then, c, how do you fix things if something still goes bad? Yeah, I think that's a quite interesting space for Faith specifically, because as I was mentioning before, we are officially not an e-wallet. So we don't have an e-wallet license, but our product is quite similar to that of e-wallets. So customers, they, they call us an e-wallet. They don't know that officially we're not an e-wallet, right? Uh, but there are th certain things that we cannot do. And a lot of times we do need to consider it in our product. Sometimes it's simple things such as naming. Uh, sometimes it's features that we want to do. For example, one one thing that is in our idea uh, idea icebox that we want to do is, for example, the ability to share cashback. But then that is quite similar to a feature of sharing sending credits or sending money between consumers. Suddenly, you're in the e-wallet space, which probably we're not allowed to do. Uh, we would need right. to figure out how we how we can find a way around that. So that's with with a lot of the products that we're doing. We always need to consider this compliance aspect. Uh, that is one, and I think a second very exciting opportunity for Faith is that we are actually on the forefront of an initiative in Malaysia that is called RPP, which stands for uh, Real-Time Retail Payments Platform. It's driven by a government institution called Paynet. So that will, I think in India you have UPI, which basically allows uh, payments uh, or wallets to process payments cross platform. So for our competitors like Grab or um, uh, or Boost or Touch and Go, that they could also pay through our QR code that we have at the merchant storefront, and vice versa. Um, so all uh, all payments get routed through payment payments infrastructure, and that brings us uh, with a lot of compliance things that we need to implement and also measure the implementation. So we actually have a project team, compliance project team that has hundreds of pages from, from those government institutions of checklists that we need to implement. It even requires us to basically re-sign contracts with all our merchants. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of effort involved in, uh, in, regular, in, in, in uh, filling those compliance aspects. But right. uh, the upside is otherwise you, you're left out. If, if you're not part of those things, like if you're not part of, for example, this RPP initiative, and you're the only one. Everyone else is doing it. You have to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably the least fun part of building a product, but also <laughs> it it also gives consumer confidence. It 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 you know gives them more peace of mind and options as well, right? So if you indicate it to UPI being a relevant, uh, you know, financial instrument or financial mode of payment here, and I think uh, whatever happens with RTP. Uh, in Malaysia, Singapore, geography, or the other parts of the world, I think it's it all 
is geared at two things. A, I think the way I see this is A is ease of doing business, right? So, or ease of paying somebody, not even doing business. I think probably it's, makes it harder to do business because of the compliance part, but for the from the customer perspective, it's ease of payment, right? So instead of not having to worry about carrying a credit card if they don't choose to do uh, to to carry a credit card or not have to carry a debit card and they just be able to do consumer to business payments or at some point once you do get that e-wallet license then peer-to-peer payments as well and the second is yeah. the piece peace of mind that they can do that safely knowing that no fraudulent activity is going to happen in their uh, bank accounts or wherever else they hold that fund or the funds through which using which they'll pay the business yeah exactly but at the same time, how do you how do you think uh, international payments will work in such a system, or international internationalization will work with? E- and I don't want to use the word e-wallets a because, as you you just said, uh, Fave doesn't have an e-wallet license yet. But outside of e-wallet, uh, you know, could do you see going the PayPal route at some point down the line? And maybe that's a different product team that needs to speak on the subject, but. How how would you know and when would you know that a you need to get some sort of a banking license to expand your payments offering further, and how do you b how do you support multiple countries different countries which are governed by different laws to be able and get the customers from both the geographies onto your product platform and make it make it all work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's you can go about it. So I'm not not up to date with what are the latest developments, but I do know that, for example, Paynet uh, is a representative of a larger Southeast Asian initiative of enabling these cross-border payments. So, so the one way you can do go about it is basically follow what the institutions are doing, what the what the governments are doing, but that usually follows long, long timelines, right? I don't think PayPal they they waited for any laws to be passed that uh, that would secure what they're doing, and they just went ahead and did it. So that would be another way that you that you could go about it. When uh, when you're looking at Faith, for example, I think uh, we we are already a cross cross country uh, platform. So nothing would stop you from if for whatever reason a merchant would decide that they want to go into the online delivery space and list their product offerings. Uh, in Indonesia and sell it to Malaysia, we could facilitate that. And I don't think we would be breaking any sort of regulations in it. It's just that our product is probably, our user experience is probably not designed around doing it. And probably our customers are also not expecting that they're able to do it. So right now, we technically it's possible. We don't necessarily uh, uh, facilitate doing it um, just because just our our user journeys and our how our app structure is built up, it would make it a very broken user experience to do it. And I think right. for, for customers to be ready to that for that, we probably would need uh, this government initiative to to do it um, because then everyone will jump on it and everyone will provide solutions to it. And then customers will, will understand what actually this is and what can I use it for. Understood. So I hear two things then from this. One is the soft problems, which are related to the to the programming or the product itself, such as, as you said, the onboarding experience and the personalization. And that could extend to having to supply different languages that your product supports, you know, Malay in, in Malaysia and then 
maybe uh, you know some some variant of Chinese language in Singapore and other parts uh, and different language in Indonesia and other parts of the world. So that's one. And on the hard problem side of things would be the regulations and how cross-border currency transfer is constructed. And with that also comes different currencies that you need to support and what who eats the exchange rate difference, right? Who supports yeah. all of that? So, so I think all of those hard problems need to be sorted through with government intervention. But the soft problems, I think at some level, you would want to do that already because we are living in a global world. And within a given border, you you would have people who speak different languages, who are comfortable with different ways of doing things. Android versus iOS is another problem that all product owners are always trying to solve. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. so just some parting thoughts uh, before I let, I, don't, I, I know I don't want to keep you any longer because I said 40 minutes. You already passed 50. <laughs> no uh, so what, what, are, what is your thought or what are your thoughts on the outlook for the global industry for these aggregators, uh, the products that aggregate different offerings and especially the financial product industry as such? Uh, where do you think this is headed? And do you see that you know less cash is the way to go or cashless economies are the way forward with P2P systems in place? Or as uh, the other example that you provided, RTP payment systems being in place, is that the future? Or do you think the credit card economy and the cash, pay cash and get your product economy is still going to live at a substantive level in the future as well? Yeah, so I think um, for, for Faith and probably similar uh, wallets, there's two ways we look at them. So number one is nothing beats the experience of paying with card. Like if you think about it, pulling out your phone, you might have connectivity issues. You need to open your app. You need to open the scanner. You need to open the QR code. Uh, pay, card payment is faster. However, the reason we know our customers prefer paying with faith or with other e-wallets is through the loyalty aspect. So go about it is actually uncovering ways how you can unlock this loyalty aspect of cash even though the customer pays with card. So then comes in a uh, completely different um, text, like line of uh, what kind of tech you need to build when it comes to integration, integrating with like the backend infrastructure of those payment providers or of the POS uh, systems. Um, so that that is one aspect, uh, which is quite interesting that Faith is exploring. Um, however, another way that I see it is if you find a way to to beat the um, beat the payment speed of cards, that could be the next big thing. Um, I've heard from friends that live in China that there are places where you just need to look at a face scanner, and that is your face ID in order to pay, which is an even smooth, more smoother experience. You don't need to carry either your wow. phone nor your card. Wow! <laughs> so <laughs> it, if that can be nailed down, that that would be the next big thing. But definitely cashless. Everything is going to be is going to be cashless. And I think the second side that businesses need to figure out and need to be able to win is the aspect of how expensive is it to acquire customers because the competition is just growing. There's there's going to be more and more players, um, and they're all right now. They're all burning cash to enter the market and burn cash to keep in the market. Uh, Grab the largest player is uh, still not profitable. They're still burning cash and burning cash. And I think one key uh, development that we've seen in the past uh, months, I think since the beginning of the year, also one big big thing that happened was that, for example, WeWork uh, kind of failed. 
because they were also just burning cash and burning cash is that investors uh, are much more looking for sustainable business models uh, profit uh, or EBITDA on the uh, is it's becoming more and more important business metric even for startups so what we'll need to evolve is probably not only the tech but also the business model and customers uh, they they don't like to change what they used to so when you when you reduce the amount of uh, value that is given to the customer because they need to revamp your business model to become profitable then you run into the risk of losing them and it's quite interesting uh, in, i don't know if if you've seen the developments but uh, we've seen with grab they changed the the structure of their points making them less valuable Air Asia may change the structure of their points, making it less valuable. And Boost also changed the points, making it less valuable because they see they cannot support this burning cash. And then they end up, uh, yeah, annoying their customers and might lose them that they have spent so much money acquiring before. I think that's a, that's a classic product manager's dilemma, right? How do you get the first set of customers on board so you subsidize their entry and you eat that into your cac mm -hmm. but eventually it's an unsustainable process because especially if you plan to stay bootstrapped right yes it's easy to raise money well easy as in it's all relative well you're raising money you're burning somebody else's cash and then showing the entire possible country as the as your tam right that's your addressable market that you'll say that yes not you as in you as in Faye, but you as in any product owner in that matter, product manager. And I think that's that's a problem that nobody has solved successfully. Is that everybody's just playing the waiting game that can you outburn the rest of the competition and be the only dominant or the top three dominant players in the market in that segment? And then the addressable market is big enough for those two or three players. But as long as you have more than two or three players, as if you have 10 players or 20 players, then it's just a burning game and it, mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a race to the bottom yeah yeah i mean i like to think that faith has solved the problem <laughs> 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 at least that's what i that's why what what keeps me here what makes me so excited to work with this product because i i really think we have the option to solve problems not only for consumers and for merchants but also of course for for us as well and only if we if we stay sustainable and we're going to stick around uh, we can't continue to drive this value for, uh, yeah, stakeholders. Fantastic. All right, Lauren, thank you so much uh, for sharing your time and thoughts and expertise with us today. It was thank lovely you so much having, for having you. Me. Yeah, we're glad that we invited you. And uh, hopefully some point in the future, we can revisit the subject and, you know, augment the learnings that we carried today with the new ones that you'd share with us in the future. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. See, see you.